Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Manish Kara. Hi, Manish. Hey, Nibel. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. Manish is a business line CISO at a major utilities company focused on electricity. Prior to his current role, he was an associate partner for ENY's Forensic Integrity Services practice, where he assisted clients in responding to, investigating, and remediating cybersecurity incidents. Manish also held significant security leadership roles in the financial services industry with Century Investments, Royal Bank of Canada, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He has a wealth of expertise in application security, third-party assessments, consulting, fraud detection, and much more. So Manish, let's get started with you telling us a little bit more about your background in cybersecurity. You know, I think you've kind of summed it up quite well, actually. But um, basically, my whole career has been in cybersecurity. I got lucky early on in my career. I was a network engineer, and uh, I was at a company. We bought a an IDS company back in like the late '90s, early 2000s. And I like the clandestine nature of cybersecurity and that kind of a uh, cloak and dagger. I, I'm like a cop without a fucking like, chance of getting shot at. So I, I enjoyed it, and I stuck with it. <laughs> Awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about some stuff that's more related to the utility sector itself. You know, recently, the Florida water treatment facility breach has made a lot of headlines. Has that driven some other cybersecurity concerns that utility companies are now keeping a close eye on and and why? You know, I think utility companies have historically been underfunded, have had underfunded cyber programs at least, because there wasn't really an obvious monetization process and how a cyber criminal may make money in that, in that attack sort of thing, right? I think the last five, 10 years, you know, the utilities companies have really woken up to the issues around the security of our, of our utilities and the interest from nation state attackers and the like, right? So the Florida water hack, you know, it, it was sort of a somewhat eye-opening, you know, hey, there's people's lives at risk here potentially, right? And ultimately, was it a sophisticated cyber adversary? More than likely not. It sounded like some sort of credential stuffing thing. Somebody got lucky, probably not nation state, probably just dumb luck, right? But but you know, it does further highlight the need for diligence in the, in the sector because you know we there, people's lives are at stake. You know, look at the grid issues in, in Texas. It tells you that you know there we have more responsibility and accountability that that has to be kind of called upon to um to drive up stronger programs in general. While while Texas had nothing to do with cyber, I, I agree. But you can imagine how a cyber incident could cause a situation like that also. So it, it is sort of good to get that highlight and that that's recognition that it's important to kind of keep diligent there. Do you think historically utility companies have gotten a free pass from a lot of cyber threats because they were not necessarily as interconnected or exposed to the internet, whereas now with more adoption of telecommunication technologies and remote assistant technologies, is the attack surface changing? You know, I think you hit it on the head, right? There, it, things are changing. It's not all analog monitors anymore. Now we have remote apps to monitor uptimes, to flick over. Just imagine like an outage occurred and we could actually switch over an area, a neighborhood from one substation to another to bring that power back. I think that, you know, that there's some power, there's some value that they've created, but there's some risk. There's some a broader t- attack landscape has, has been has arisen because of it, right? So uh, absolutely, there's just changes occurring. And um, one thing I would say, though, is um, in terms of incidents and the free pass that you mentioned, so we have very good baseline understanding of how the 
what's happening in our utility sector. We know what, what, what kind of usage is at any given time. We know what it should be. And we've got years and decades of data on that, right? So because of that, when there are blips, we have very good recognition of that, that issue, right? So I would say that it's hard to... Um, you can't really compare a $2 million wire transfer in the middle of the night from JP Morgan's bank. Because that, that you, how, what is normal? What is abnormal in that scenario, right? So, but for a utility, we pretty much know at 2 a.m., you're not doing a lot of surges, a lot of electrical usage. Therefore, there's just spikes. There could be some sort of problem that, that, that's indicative that it needs to be researched. So we would have very good monitoring that stuff. So the free pass is not necessarily true, but I agree with you that the, the easy path to monetization wasn't there early on. Now it's more recognized, you know, with ransomware and ransom type activities and the like. So there, are, there is a way for, you know, for national governments to do bad things, to make money off us potentially, and, and no longer have that kind of that, that free pass we once had maybe. <laughs> so speaking of the utilities, uh, the Biden administration recently announced their 100-day electrical grid security plan. What are your thoughts on the plan itself? You know, I think it's a good thing. They're they're collaborating. They're asking for input. What can we do to make this more secure? So, you know, I like that that behavior. It's not like they're forcing upon something. Now, there's a technology component. They're looking at a single baseline technology across all utilities, all electrical utilities to get some sort of Intel data more than likely. And maybe I just raise the baseline a little bit, which is great for smaller players, you know. The larger players typically are covered. You know, they, they have great cyber programs. They have, you know, bank level cyber programs for years now, right? Smaller players may not be there just yet. So it's a good thing to bring that, that baseline up. Now, now, what I say is that um, it'd be really interesting to see what happens. So once we have this sort of initial rollout, initial 100-day sort of situation that we're, that we're looking through, is this more theater or is it actual, you know, real drive to make a change here? And I hope it's more than theater. I hope there actually is a need or drive to raise the bar. The last thing I'd say is that um, any government oversight comes with oversight, comes with a cost and impacts. That's not an ideal scenario, of course. But uh, I, I think we take on that responsibility or whatever it might be to, to get a, to raise the bar across the board or on the electrical grid for sure. Is the, is the cost of that oversight significantly higher than not having that oversight and then not having the necessary baselines in place where you have to go and figure those out on your own? Yeah, that's no, a fine line, right? Well, what's right, what's wrong here? But I think that um, any oversight, especially for larger uh, organizations, does have drag on our ability to, to deliver. Like if you look at the financial service industry for a second, heavily regulated. One would argue, one could argue, and I, I talked to many CISOs at banks and, and, and different types of institutions, and their, their um, cyber programs are generally built around regulatory findings and reviews. They don't have a roadmap based on security risk. They have it based on meeting regulatory requirements. Now, theoretically, the regulatory requirements may be what the risk profiles are, but it's not actually the case all the time, right? I remember when I was at RBC, our program was really driven by the regulators. And I just sort of, to me, too much oversight can be a problem also. You can be, you know, only compliance oriented and therefore you lose that sort of, you know, risk-minded pragmatism, which I think that has to be there also. And that's fair. So let's shift gears slightly. You've worked extensively actually in both consulting and as a practitioner side by side. What would you say are the biggest differences between the two sorts of roles? Yeah, so I probably spent half my career in consulting and half my career internal. And I think that um, working at externally as a client facing person, you do have to act with more urgency. You're being judged every day. You're, you're charging hundreds of dollars an hour for your time. Clients want results and they're not, not afraid to, to ask you for them and to demand them from you, quite honestly. So uh, you do keep on your toes. You do act with urgency and move fast. So that, that's sort of, that's sort of, and you also have a, a client service focus, right? You, you, you think about the person's reaction to what you're going to say. You, you have more empathy around them. So that is, um, they're valuable skills, especially when you're negotiating things, you work on the inside. So I work on the inside now. And then there's value there too, because the value from an inside perspective is you have the ability to step back and be thoughtful about your, your I mean, contemplative, maybe a better word for it, for your big decisions. 
Whereas if you work inside only, you, you can become a little, you know, rough around the edges and not very client service focused. And you may end up getting a little bit slow in response to things and not really taking the urgency you need. So I think that hybrid balance does, is actually quite helpful. I, I, and I recommend that anybody, you know, entering the field or new in the field, try to, you know, be on both sides at some points. It does give you a lot, I think. And to me, it, it, was, it was purposeful. I, I found it early on when I, I actually remember my first job out of, out of school was more client facing. And when I went inside, I realized, you know, actually, I, I, do, I did get a lot out of that, that um, outside in kind of perspective. So I highly recommend if anybody joined the field to try some things on both sides. Now, are there certain types of indicators or a certain time frame that you recommend people spend in each of these roles and then make, it, make a change? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, you can find, kind of feel it in yourself a little bit, right? So if you, and on the outside, you maybe kind of lose some of those hands-on attachment skills. When you're on the inside, maybe you get a little bit more annoyed and, and kind of a crusty sort of thing, right? So I'm not sure if, but generally speaking, you know, I don't, I don't think many people last more than two, three years in a role anymore. So those are usually good transition periods. Not that I'm advocating that. I've jumped around a lot of my career. I'm not always, you know, the, the best moves, quite honestly. So I may not be the best person to take advice in that perspective, but I would say that Every couple of years, you should look at kind of shifting a little bit, even if it's in the same company, shifting your focus a little bit just to get kind of a fresher kind of view on what you're doing. Yeah, that could help you keep you fresh and alive and enjoying the job also. Yeah, no, I mean, I think having that well-rounded view and background is always helpful. So, so yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. So the industry, from a security perspective, we come in from the outside and meet people and say, hey, we need to think about security more proactively. And we always use the term, it needs to be proactive versus reactive and, and so on and so forth. And I feel like I've been a broken record repeating that now for the 14 years or so that I've been doing consulting. I'm curious if you believe that the mindset has actually migrated to a more proactive approach today, or do you think there's more work that needs to happen in that space? You know, I think we have become more proactive. I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said we're the same people we were 15 years ago. Is it working? Hard to say, right? So I'd say that we definitely have creative programs. You look at AppSec, for example, you know, all the shifting left we talk about and, you know, and just sort of uh, even security assessments consulting, we're getting involved earlier on the projects, make sure that it's not, a, you know, a stage gate pen test that occurred. That's our security kind of assessment for a project. So obviously we've grown and, and matured in that regard. I just think that, you know, what is the right approach here? If, if we're too proactive, we may be, we may miss some of the, you know, the, the needs for that, that last minute sort of kind of review because obviously, uh, a pen test before a go live is, you know, for an external facing application, for example, it's a good, it's a good best practice. And, you know, ideally, you know, we have good application security processes in place early on where we're using, you know, SAS, DAS, whatever kind of scans we can to kind of in IDE plugins, what have you, just to get kind of a better feel for the low hanging fruit, maybe. And then in an ideal world, that pen test is, you know, that stage gate checkbox, compliance checkbox versus an actual findings sort of report card. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do think that we, we're, um, we're getting better there. I just, I get complaints all the time that my team's not being reactive, you know, proactive enough. And quite honestly, it's a tough hill to climb. I'd be honest with you. So when talking about pen testing, you mentioned something that resonates really well with how I talk about pen testing with a lot of people, which is, I think, ultimately, people tend to start their security practices with pen testing as a way to discover vulnerabilities. But I think as you mature, you really have to change that mindset to thinking pen testing needs to be a way for us to determine how effective our other controls are that we have shifted left earlier in the life cycle of the software development process or product development process. That being said, the practice of pen testing also hasn't necessarily changed much in the last decade to two decades. 
what are your thoughts in terms of the actual pen testing practice itself? How does that need to evolve based on what trends you're seeing in the industry today? So I think you and I are of one mind in this space, right? I do agree with you 100% that, that pen testing has to evolve. I think that the idea of it sort of being a report card, being that kind of finding vulnerabilities when in actuality it should be just be, you know, the, the sum total of great activities up to that point where it's a clear kind of uh, scan to go through, right? Um, so feature pen testing, I think we have to do a couple of different things. I think that we should be, you know, pen testing less, but um, being more thoughtful about it in that um, we are willing to spend the money to threat model down, to get proper avenues for the security. You know, usually use third parties. I'm going to assume it's a third party doing a pen test for you. We're, we're so afraid to engage a pen testing vendor for too long a period of time to spend too much money on that pen test. I think we need to threat model, work with that vendor, spend time with them, make sure they have enough time to not just find vulnerabilities that are lucky to find, but all the vulnerabilities that are exposed by, you know, by this application, for example. And that means spending a little money. Maybe you do it less often to keep your budget in line. Just be smart about it. I think if I say, hey, vendor, you have two weeks. Do as you can in two weeks. That is not really a good pen test. That's sort of like, okay, here's my, you know, X dollar, X dollar spend. It's all I'm affording you. Uh, if, it's, if it's a marquee app, you know, get that vendor in, spend a day with them, have them really understand where the actual threat vectors are, understand what the, the kind of the important parts of that application or data sets are, what the target would be from a kind of an informed, authenticated user. And then, Give them the time to figure it out and then like, work it out. And then the vendor should be smart about it too. It's not like I've got four people sitting on desk computers for hundreds of hours. Like be smart about it, you know, have them targeted also. And so it's maybe a little bit on both sides to be smart about it, but it can't be the way it is today. It can't be a, a kind of time box, very slim budgeted event. It's got to be thoughtful and, and threat focused versus, you know, I have 50K to spend on a pen test. I, that just doesn't make it sense to me, quite honestly. So that's, that's one thing, one aspect I think has been changed from pen testing. And I do think that all these shift left you know, marketing schemes, they've got to come into play. I think we've got to get better integrated in using those scans, using those IDE plugins, teaching developers how to code better. I think that taking, um, you know, you and I talked about this in the past, actually, about security champions, having somebody from a development team join your AppSec team also, working that team, learning processes, getting better at understanding AppSec things, and going back into the development team and being that champion for you, being someone to understand, speak the same language as your, your team. That's going to help out a lot too. Then all of a sudden, pen testing, like we said, is just sort of an event that you know clears. It's, a, it's just it's a scorecard that makes sure you did good things up to that point. And then you find anything, it may be a thing you find, which is a small effort versus this huge effort, you know, delaying projects going going live. So I would hope that pen testing kind of does mature in that regard. But you know, time will tell, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the analogy I use with people is it's when I go see my annual doctor's visit and you know, they ask me if I've been eating healthy, have I been exercising, you know, how much caffeine do I consume? How much alcohol do I consume? They basically want to see if I'm being a good citizen or not. And based on that, they determine if I need a blood test, or if I need additional tests, if I need a stress test, and so on and so forth. So I think it's very similar from from that perspective. Now, you mentioned a couple of key things that I do want to dig a little deeper into. The first one around threat modeling, you know, historically, we've seen that threat modeling is a very time-consuming and manual effort, but it does provide a lot of value. Can you share with us, without getting into details, obviously, maybe a scenario where you guys found that threat modeling something and then using that to drive a pen test or drive a security activity was more valuable and helped you find something that you wouldn't have normally found? Every time we've done, every time we've done any threat modeling, the first time you do it, it's always the heaviest lift, right? It's like, Creating that framework, how do you do it again and again? I think it's repeatable. That's, that's the heavy lift. That's like the, the, you know, the many day, many week process potentially, right? So um, 
but I do think it gets easier time. Like, so if, you're, if you have the same kind of teams involved, you have that threat modeling champion or threat modeling team member in the AppSec team or the group kind of engage when that, when the vendor comes in the threat model, you can make it easier with time because it can follow that kind of consistent framework. So the time issue may not be a huge one going forward, but yes, upfront, it's difficult. Um, in terms of, you know, a, a key win in that space, I, every time we do it, we find a, a good win. I, I have not done a threat model. We have the, oh, you know, we totally forgot about that. You know, team viewer access to the back end of this application for the, for our, our third party supports this application. I work for a lot of companies that have to do a lot more buy than build. I mean, I've done a lot of build uh, environments also, but buy, a buy versus build. Those scenarios are a little more scary because they, they usually have backdoors where vendors come in and kind of modify code or update things. And that scenario is not thought of by the development team, the, the configuration teams will call them, they're only developing. They're configuring, configuring the application and the app security teams are walking in kind of, they don't know every application. Okay, so this application does these 10 things for us, whatever it might be. But in actuality, there was a backdoor in. So that backdoor, you know, whether it was fucked by that, by team viewer, they had some kind of weird RDP acts back in there we didn't know about. So we found out about that, you know, we, we, we ended up like testing that environment now, realizing, you know, the, you know, I, you know it's RDP that my, my, my lip kind of quivers in a, in a sad way because I know how, how bad that can be, right? And being a former IR guy, I can tell you it's not exactly a thing I like to hear, but that's just an example. There's just tons of examples like that. We'll learn about a new data set or where that data is backed up somewhere else. So yeah, we're banging with this application, but it's insecurely stored somewhere else. Like, the data's there, like never there versus, you know, using some complex, you know, OWASP top 10 issue, a bug in this, is this web app, right? They're, they're just going to the back end data set, right? So every time I, I, we find something that's sort of kind of shocking, surprising, such that um, you always should do it. And you should, you should just like, you know, Google it. If you don't know how to do it, Google it, figure it out, people. Like that's, it's a really important thing to kind of understand because um, I think we can all, um, all do better pet testing, better testing in general, understanding of our applications better when we do that kind of thing. If I can try to distill down what you said, I think is essentially pen testing is coming in blind to do a pen test is not always as valuable as having more details and information about how the system is architected. So, you know, taking an approach where you're enabling your pen testers with as much detail about the system as possible only allows you to get better results, right? I think, I think have, I, have I summarized that correctly? 100%. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not really a big fan of, you know, black box testing or kind of unauthenticated, un not understood testing. I think that um, we have to assume that an adversary has deep inside knowledge of the environment because they likely do. They likely can get it. They can buy it potentially. They can coerce somebody to give it to them. They can get it. So you should assume it's there. If you're assuming they're dumb and just sort of like hoping to get lucky, your willful blindness is not a, not a good place to be as a cybersecurity professional. We have to kind of open our eyes to that scenario. So I 100% I agree that yes, we want informed uh, testing. We want detailed kind of uh, reviews. And that's how we get value. And, uh, and, and that's sort of, Beyond that, you're just sort of checking a box unnecessarily. No, and, and the way I see it too, uh, my perspective on that is attackers have quote unquote unlimited amount of time to try and exploit something. Whereas if you're hiring a pen tester or a vendor to come and do a test for you, they have limited time to find as many things as they can. Whereas a real world attacker has unlimited time to exploit that one issue that they need to exploit. To That's an interesting point you bring up. So, so I think from a nation state attacker perspective, like they're being funded by their, by their government. They're just a job for them. Absolute time is of no issue to them whatsoever. Right? I agree with you. But you know, cyber criminals, it's a job. They're making money on the win, right? So for them, I think time is money. So in that scenario, I, it's one little nuance I'd say from, you know, again, from instant response perspective, they're, they're, they're definitely cutting losses. So make, a, make an attempt at an attack. If it, it doesn't happen easily, quickly, they bounce out because they know they can get it somewhere else, right? So that's the only nuance I would say that at this point, but it's a very good point, mind you, but it, the nation state attackers, time is 
of no issue whatsoever. But time is of the essence for cyber criminals. They do want to make money on their investments, so they're not going to waste time also. So basically, if you want to avoid the cyber criminals, just don't be as bad as others that are out there, as long as you're not not the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, this, is a bear, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is a bear rabbit analogy or somewhere. I think we could talk pull up, but I, no, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the Champions program that you mentioned as well. Would love your insights into how you built the program in the past and what you've seen work well. Also, you know, would be really curious to understand what you feel didn't work well from what you've tried. Sure. Okay. So that past banking job, job I ran, I ran an overall AppSec program. We created a security champion program where we had developers come into the AppSec team for three months. We backfilled that developer with the contractors. We paid them. Said, Ideally, they lost no productivity, you know. They probably did some, of course. We took high performers in that scenario, also such that um, you know, they they were willing to they want to learn and they they were keen on you know doing good, doing a job, right? So they came in raring to go. So they were they they learned how to you know interpret a pen test, order a DAS scan, run a DAS scan, pull it out, look at the results, look at a SAS scan, see how fruitful or fruitless the resulting findings could be, right? And moving back into the um, app development team after the three months, and they were able to push back on us on pen test findings. They were able to, you know, understand the value of DAS, SAS scans, IDE plugins, all that kind of good stuff. And they became like a part of our team, but I'm not paying for them anymore. I only paid for three months and they were all of a sudden like running out, running their own show there in the, the app dev team. And they, they brought along people with them and people were excited. That's kind of fun. I learned something new. Then, then their you know, peers jumped in our team also. They want to be part of this process. And honestly, it was a great, great program. I, I had no idea how good it would come out. I was like really kind of floored by the uptake, by the, the value we got out of it. I mean, what's this thing, you know, I push the most when I talk about this program is that um, the, um, a champion who's a developer, giving him the ability, the language to fight back or push back on a pen test finding was so valuable to me as an AppSec leader because it gave us the ability to you know, reconcile. Is this critical finding or high finding from the pen test vendor actually valid? Is it real? Or are they compensating controls now that 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 person understands what a compensating control is, which they never knew before, and now like they're pushing back and like, hey, that makes good sense. You know what? I trust you now, so you can make those calls to some degree. That we'll sign off on them, but you make a call, make give me your recommendations, and we push. And it was just like, wow, you know, like, and you know, one last thing I'll say about that is, um, well, two last things. One, one second last thing I'll say about that is that um, people talk about the hiring practices and the need and the, the, the so many people open jobs and all the fill them. We just filled somebody with like a three month contract and now they're a full time. Somebody else is paying for them. It was like a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Zach, the last thing you asked me about what things that didn't work out well, the long, long term, after about the third iteration of the program, uptake wasn't as good. The, the quality of people I was getting wasn't as good also. So it, I, I, I didn't know, I, I struggled a little bit of kind of reinvigorating at that point. So there's something I need to do there around how to keep it interesting you know, it may, it may just been fatigue from the NAPSAC team perspective. They were kind of sick and tired training people. So maybe I should have rotated that better. And maybe I should have picked better in the, the third iteration of people developers coming in. Maybe I should have put a pause for six months and ended it again. I don't know. There's, there's little nuances we could play around with a little there, but there was some fatigue, I think, on the, on the program after a while. Yeah, I think a, a lot of this Security Champions programs that I've been looking at, people tend to forget how much time and effort is needed to nurture and maintain that program. It's not quite as simple as, okay, I've trained a bunch of people and then I'm done. You know, there needs to be uh, additional socialization, additional events, additional training, build a sense of community across the champions. I think those are things that people often forget. Initially, you get this immediate impact and, and results that you see up front. And then you kind of maybe get a little complacent and say, okay, you know what, this is great. It's working. I'm just going to do what I've been doing without innovating on, on improving that prospect. Yeah, I probably dropped it in neutral. I should have kept it yeah. in drive. That's a very yeah, good point. Exactly. Actually. <laughs> 
I'm also curious if you had any gearing ratio in terms of how many champions do you need per hundred developers or, you know, how many champions can you train effectively in, in one session with a security team of X number of people? Do you have any data or any estimates from, from that type of uh, information? Well, that's the best. No, I don't have real data on this scenario. So we had, we had a team about 15 or 14 AppSec people of which about eight were kind of focused on, you know, that operational process that the, the, the developers came in for champion program. We had two people at any given time. So for the eight or people, we had about, you know, one for every four people. They just sort of helped out because not one person was required to like sort of hand, hold their hand all the way through, right? And they, had a, they, had a, they did a full-time job, so they couldn't do, you know, as much training as they like to. So that's sort of how I felt it. And from a development perspective, yeah, it's hard to say, right? I mean, each development pod, they're not very, not many people. Like mostly, you know, development teams generally aren't like, you know, thousands of people. They're just sort of like smaller groups, pockets, you know, five, 10 people working together, maybe two, three people working together, sort of thing, right? So, you know, you get an asset champion per pod, you're winning. I, it's, it's hard to say what the right number is. And I've not yet, you know, solved that problem. But <laughs> it's one I, I hope to one day. How about that? <laughs> no, for sure. Have you ever used anything like training or metrics from training to identify champions? Or was it mostly just nominations from managers? You know, it's, it's a good, I guess, data point if you can do it. If you have security training in place for developers and they are, and, and you have that data advanced, I would, I would use it as a data point as a, as a person who scores high there and has, you know, good kind of recommendations, good reviews. Absolutely. They're, they're a key candidate for you, right? And the problem is like, once you get to the first, second round of all those candidates, it drops off pretty quickly. All of a sudden you get some kind of like, you know, high, performing well, but not necessarily your highest performers. Scoring decently well, but they may not be that, that interested in the testing. Testing's not that much fun. It's, it's you know, it's, even I both know it. it's a little mundane going through those little app tech security tests, right? So yeah, it, it's only effective probably early on. Later on, it's not as effective. So I, I you know, you never know. You, you can find some spikes of new hires, that kind of thing happen all the time, right? But development people do iterate, iterate a lot through companies, so it's possible. But um, honestly, it's, it's usually kind of a combination of multiple data points. So kind of in the same line. A common challenge that a lot of security leaders express that they have today is building that harmony between a dev group and the security group or dev groups and security groups within their, their organization. The champions program, I'm assuming, is one of the things that worked really well. Do you have any other advice on how to address those challenges? I think you talk about AppSec and, and dev teams, right? So when I look at AppSec, I think all you're doing is making their lives easier from a dev perspective, right? So Five years, 10 years ago, maybe more now, um, pen test stage gate, they hated us, right? So you pen test it two months later, you know, okay, so a week later, you get a report, two weeks later, you get a report, then you got like six weeks of rushing around and fixing vulnerabilities and a rescan and crossing your fingers, hope it worked, right? So um, we were, you know, we were a hated group back then, right? Now, when we're giving them tools and processes and people to help them kind of, again, shift left, I hate to use that language, but it's you know, shifting left and like, you know, ID plugins and, you know, SAS scanning, SAS scans, you know, bugs being generated into Jira directly for them versus like this whole like secondary, you know, repository of findings. I, I think we're only doing is enabling them, making their lives easier. And in an ideal world, and I'm not saying it's there yet, but you know, that pen test, like I said, if it comes back clean, it's all those good efforts you did up to that point. And that's, and those good efforts came from the AppSec team. They delivered that. So they're, they made the jobs easier. I know it made it a little bit more friction-ish, frictional, I guess. Uh, but it sort of it did slow things down a little bit, but it did make things go well at the end. So what I would say is that, um, you know, I think you've got a good story to tell. And I mean, you just be willing to say it, but as well also um, be open, like think about it a little bit. It's thoughtful. You go to the dev leaders, they may not like you because of what you represent, you know, that, that, that hurdle, right? That stop sign. But if you go with the right story saying, hey, this is what we're doing. This is, what we've, this is how the things have changed. Now, like a good thing, you know, 
because pen tests are things that are pretty much done on a regular basis, you can so show you know the drop in findings year over year, and that takes time to get those data points, unfortunately. But that is a way to kind of illustrate that sort of ease of go live and ease of making their job easy at the end. Because at the end of a, a project delivery, that's the most very painful process for any 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 um, project team, right? They're just rushing to get last minute things in place. There's so many checkpoints and things you have to kind of adhere to to make you know this project go live on the right date sort of thing, right? And that's a lot of work, work and long hours. So if you can say, hey, I'm going to take away that six-week variable period from you. I mean, how could they not love you at that point? They're not going to recognize it unless you tell them that you did it, right? So be, be proud of what you did, but also like bring the data. Hey, look what I'm doing for you. You know, you know last year, you wanted to go live, you were three weeks late because of, well, my test. Now you're, you clear up that test the day after the report came back. So I, I think it's an easy discussion to have. I just think you have to be willing to have it and be you know, eager to have it and versus like just sort of you know, taking the win inside, but not like, you know, walking around with a you know, high five people, right? So I acknowledge it, I guess. Do you think AppSec teams have a marketing challenge and maybe they need to hire someone to market their program and, and market and evangelize across the organization what they're doing and what the processes are? Because I often find that that's a gap between dev and AppSec, but curious what you think. Uh, 100%. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head. You need, you, need, you need an evangelist of some sort, but an AppSec program leader, or an AppSec product leader, whatever you want to call them, like have that person express the, the wins you're having and, and share that the great things are coming forward because there's always something new coming in on the corner, right? So like, it's, it's easy. And then I think that um, when we do more of that, um, we do kind of open the eyes that, hey, you know, we're, we're no longer those information security people in general, cyber people in general, aren't just trying to make your life harder. You know, that's not our job. We're just trying to make your life easier, actually, in a risky, riskless way, risk-free way, right? We're trying to make things better, smarter, or risk managed way, I should say, right? But I think for, um, I think every pillar product has to have a product owner. AppSec is no different than that. And if you don't do it, and even if you're more of a build versus, sorry, a buy versus build type of environment, I think you still need it. I think you still need somebody to, to kind of evangelize the value you're bringing in that regard. Because if you don't do it, you know, you just, um, you're not showing the value to the company there's just a lot of money being invested here. So look, just, you can get me smart about it, quite honestly. All right. Well, Manish, uh, one thing we like to do on this podcast is talk to people about non-work related things and get to know them more personally. You have an extremely talented daughter who has some entrepreneurial experience and exposure. Would love to learn more about her and what she's doing. Yeah. So um, um, my daughter, Nina, is uh, like a little, little, little entrepreneur. She, um, she joined this program years ago. Always been like kind of an avid computer person programmer. She programs in like five different languages and she's, you know, just turned 15. So she's really kind of interested in the space, right? And um, she joined a program, they're kind of a, in an innovation type of environment where they teach you about kind of exponential technologies like, you know, AI, quantum computing, blockchain, genomics, you know, VR, all, the, all that kind of good stuff, right? So she got into kind of a, a human longevity and AI. Those are her two areas. So, so what, what happens is you pick a couple areas, you hit the, the cross section of those areas and see what you can do in that space. That's typically not done yet. I mean, those all every all those areas are dug deep in, but the cross section is not necessarily there. So she cross section, did a little cross section of AI and human longevity, and wrote an AI kind of machine learning algorithm to kind of look for dying cells in your body from a human longevity perspective. And then by that, like she can identify the cells that are are kind of you know causing your age, and having more of them means you're a little more biologically aged than your maybe your physical age. So her little company is coming up with a little product to test that and see how old you are from a biology perspective. So she's got a 15-year-old developing a product. You know, it's talking to VCs and private equity firms and talking to Mark Cuban and people like that. It's really crazy. <laughs> so anyways, it's been fun watching her. 
That's fantastic. We probably need to have her as a guest on the podcast soon. <laughs> she talk your ear off for sure. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Well, Manish, thank you so much for your time and your insights. It, this was really helpful. Really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up with you again really soon. For sure. Thanks a lot. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.